Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. If it's February, that means Black History Month, with solemn corporate messages and awkward tie-ins, politicians expressing their once-a-year acknowledgement of African Americans who made America, America, and countless mentions of the big names, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, and Rosa Parks. But we're now at a time when how that history is taught in the nation's public schools has become a political talking point and cudgel. And each day brings another bomb threat aimed at historically black colleges and universities, recalling the violent resistance that fought African-American progress. So in 2022, the question is, is it still possible to mark the month with respect and meaning? Interrogating America's relationship with its black citizens is serious business when historic inequities persist. Boston Globe associate editor and columnist Renee Graham, in her recent column, How and How Not to Celebrate Black History Month, offered some advice. To start, less virtue signaling and misidentifying Black people, okay? Who better to have a conversation with during Black History Month 2022? So welcome to Equal Time, Renee. Thank you. Very, very pleased to be here. Great. Well, first of all, I saw your column. Do you think we still need a Black History Month? Yes, I do. For all my misgivings about Black History Month, um, in in some ways, we actually probably need it more now than ever because of everything that's been happening in schools with, you know, this decision to ban books and certain parts of history, you know, not to teach it. I, I think it is important, but I think it's also important to remember that Black history does not stand apart from American history. So that in teaching Black history, you are teaching American history, and that in you know in reality, Black history cannot really be confined to twenty eight or twenty nine days a year. Yeah, well, you tell you, you mentioned misgivings. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I have a really uh, low threshold for cringing, and that really gets tested uh, in Black History Month. Not because I don't think this history deserves to be acknowledged. The issue I have is in so many places how it gets acknowledged, you know, in these really kind of shallow and performative ways. You know, it's like, you know, so we're now going to put up a picture of Martin Luther King and we're going to where, you know, what it reminds me of is like after uh, George Floyd's death, there was this moment when the House Democrats kneeled wearing Kenty cloth. And I know that their hearts were probably in the right place, But I just remember laughing hysterically and thinking, what is it they think they're doing right now? Like, what exactly is this accomplishing? And so you get a lot of that, um, these sort of awkward performative gestures um, that just really do nothing. It's like like a Christmas tree. You roll it out for the holiday and then you, you you put it out on the sidewalk. And that's how it feels in the way that a lot of people regard Black History Month as this thing to sort of show how, you know, if you will, woke they are. And it's a lot of virtue signaling, which has absolutely nothing to do with Black people or Black history. Or or their actions in other ways. Uh, So how ideally should the country celebrate Black Americans and their history? I think we should be celebrating Black people and their history all the time. You know, I, I understand why there are months designated. There's a Hispanic History Month. There is, you know, LGBTQ Month in June. I get all that. But the idea is that it isn't just this month. And if you're going to do it, then understand 
the history in the continuum of American history. And so it isn't just Martin Luther King. It isn't just Rosa Parks and Frederick Douglass and, and, and uh, Harriet Tubman. I mean, that's, those are the people we see most often. But it goes so much deeper than that. And it's, it's what happened before, but it's also what's happening now. So, you know, read the books and don't just buy them and throw them on the shelf, which is what we saw after George Floyd, where like every book on the New York Times bestseller list was something about racism or anti-racism. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's not it. You need to do more than that. You know, talk to people, answer, get the questions answered, like do the work. This stuff isn't really hard. And it's like anything else people really care about. They take the time to learn to know about it. You know, you're, you know, for endless hours a day, we're sitting in front of computers. And there's this great thing called Google. And you can look things up and you can read and you can see what's going on instead of just doing, you know, instead of just like throwing up a, a Black Lives Matter sign on your front lawn and thinking you've done the work. That's not the work, you know. And so for me, it's, it's an opportunity to expand your knowledge, to learn more. And I think that isn't really emphasized enough. It's this, it's the sense that, you know, well, we're going to have this one event and we'll all show up, you know, whether it's virtually or not. And then that's going to be it. And it's always this idea that I can let me do the least I can do and feel like I've done the most. And it, it just goes so deep. And we keep finding out how much that we as Americans don't understand about our own history, in particular, things that happen to Black people, such as the Tulsa race massacre and how it is that no, I mean, look, I went to school, I went to college. I didn't learn about that till years later. You know, there's so much we don't know. And I think once you find it out, then you need to start asking the questions as to why we don't know it. You know, so and that goes beyond February. Yeah. And you brought up the Tulsa race massacre and looking into that. One of the whys is that they tried to basically obliterate it from the public record, uh, whether it was newspaper accounts. And so, like you say, you have to learn about why you don't know it. Well, that's the thing. It's, it's not just a, why well, I didn't know this. You have to ask yourself, well, how was I not taught this? And I mean, I remember you know, talking with friends who were history majors and saying, I'm a, you know, I'm a historian and I knew nothing about the Tulsa race massacre. And you have to always understand the ways that who gets served by history? Who benefits, not just from the history, but how that history is told and conveyed through generations? And that's part of, I think, something that Americans aren't particularly good at. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. a few things we're not good at, but that's that's a big one. And that's whether we're talking about Tulsa, or we're talking about the Trail of Tears, or we're talking about the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Anything that does not edify America, in terms of white people, gets eliminated. And that's a big problem in this country. That's, that has a lot to, to, to do with why we're in the position we're in. And at the same time, we know that there are orchestrated efforts to even deepen how that happens. It's not just this way that things will end up on curriculums. It's, it is the removal of books. It's removal of books about slavery and about racism, about the Holocaust, about LGBTQ people. It's all of these issues that someone decides we're not going to tell them about this, you know, and we know that all the ways that that becomes really toxic uh, in our culture. We are a country that seems in some ways to revere history, but it's folks revering a myth, mythological Confederate history. Um, so it's not as though people don't look back, but they construct different myths. I mean, you know, I mean this, this is a country that fought a civil war you know, against 
traitors who wanted to secede from the nation and perpetuate slavery. And what did they get? They got monuments. They got boulevards named after them. You know, you don't see boulevards named after Hitler in Berlin, but you can go through any number of places in this country and, and maybe a little less so now since a lot of those statues have come down, but it's, it was everywhere. And that's how you perpetuate a myth that it was about states' rights and that these were men of valor and not traitors who wanted to keep Black people in bondage. And, you know, the more you sort of throw that message out there, the harder it is to convince people of the truth. Because you have to say, well, if Robert E. Lee was a traitor, why was there a giant statue of him? Why were there monuments to him? Why were there buildings and universities named after him? You know, that's how it kind of gets gets perpetuated. And so America loves its history, but they love a very bolderized version of history and a very self-serving version of history. You know, you know, history is messy. <laughs> history is as messy as the people who make that history. And that's not the way it's ever been taught in this country. And so I would, I would love to see a refocus of Black History Month into going deeper into, again, what happened, why it happened, who benefited, why that history was hidden for so long. You know, Americans should be upset about that. Amer- you, know, I, you know, I said to someone recently, I said, it's kind of like knowing your family's medical history. You know, you, you want to understand why you have high blood pressure. You want to understand, you know, why you have allergies. Oh, my grandfather had those. My parents had those. You know, we'd be lost without understanding those genetic links. It's no different, I think, in American history. Well, that's why we're still sick. <laughs> Well, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, it, when you talked about how it was taught, you know, it, there was a reason why they had to start Black History Month. I mean, because it was so absent. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about that, about why it was needed when it started and really why it almost has needs a refurbishing, as you, uh, as you have said, a, a reformation, a digging deeper? Um, it, it, b- it began as Negro History Month in, in 1926. Um, Carter G. Woodson, who was an author and historian and educator, he launched Negro History Week because even then in 1926, he could see these gaps in history. What wasn't being taught, what he knew to be true, what he knew to be fact was not being reflected in the way that, that kids, especially Black kids, were being educated. Um, and so he started this in, in 1926, and he chose February. This is this is weird because I always thought February was the month because it was the shortest month of the year. And I thought, <laughs> of course, give Black people the shortest month of the year. But the reason why Woodson chose February was because that also honored the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, which at that point, a lot of Black people had already been celebrating in their own ways. And so that's why he chose February. But it's another 50 years before what we now know as Black History Month comes into existence, you know, and then and then it becomes this more official kind of celebration with, you know, Gerald Ford becomes the first president to have an official proclamation of Black History Month. And that has continued, you know, you know, in some cases, for better or for worse, um, ever since. Yeah. Now, uh, when I think of how our nation's leaders have marked this month, because just as in Martin Luther King's birthday, you get the proclamations, you get the statements, all of that. And it's versus their actual policies and politics when it comes to Black folks. 
the word that comes to my mind, and we both write columns, so I could say hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. So why do you think they even bother when the disconnect is so obvious? Well, that's where the performative part comes in. They do it because it's what's expected of them. You know, Ronald Reagan, you know, Mr. Welfare Queen himself, had a proclamation for Black History Month. Donald Trump, and I know a lot of us sat back and just prayed that he would ignore it. It's like, just don't say anything about Black History Month. It is not going to end well. And it didn't end well, you know, but there's this sense that, again, it's it's doing the least you can do. Mm. You know, here's a piece of paper. and I get to stand in front of a microphone and talk about all that Black people have contributed to this country, even as my policies are harming Black people. And, you know, making their lives more miserable. But I held up this piece of paper and said, yay, Black History Month. It is it is the least you can do. It is the it is sort of the lowest form of activism as these things go. And and, and it's easy. So it, it doesn't cost presidents anything to do it. It might cost them a little to not do it, but not much. But it won't cost them anything to just do it because it's done and it's forgotten about. You know, and, it's, yeah. you know, so, you know, I think that's. You know, that's sort of the issue here. It's like, it, it, it's just another one of those sorts of things. It's, you know, it's, you know, baseball teams putting up Black Lives Matter banners in their stadiums. It's like, yeah, that looks great, but what does that even mean? Like, what are you really doing within the league to change the lives of your players or the communities that these stadiums are in or any of that? That never really comes up. But again, they do the least they can possibly do and walk away feeling like champs. Well, right now we have the, in Black History Month, the prospect and the promise of a Black woman on the Supreme Court. And you would think that would be a time that would be perfect for a celebration of the country's progress. But instead, you see quite a few Republicans jockeying to get to the front of the 2024 presidential line and on the Judiciary Committee, like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. And they're denigrating this future justice's qualifications before they even know who she is. So, what does this say about this country's eternal struggle to see African-Americans as Americans and as equals? When, when you look at the accomplishments and the qualifications of these women who are potential nominees to the Supreme Court, if they were white men, or possibly if they were even white women, they wouldn't be dealing with any of this. We wouldn't be talking about whether or not they're qualified enough. And we know that Amy Coney Berry was, was nowhere near qualified enough qualified enough to be on the Supreme Court. And boy, she sure is there. It, it, what it always says and what it always reinforces is that nothing you do, nothing you achieve will ever be good enough. You know, that there are simply white people in this country and people in power, especially, who will never see you for what you achieve and why you are qualified to do these positions. No one should be questioning the qualifications of these women. When you had uh, Senator Roger Wicker from Mississippi saying that, you know, they're like beneficiaries of affirmative action. Are you kidding me? There's no bigger affirmative action program in this country than the one that exists for white men and has existed for centuries. But, you know, that's just the way it's always going to be. I don't, I don't see that changing in my lifetime. I, I don't know how it changes. I can, I can remember a few years ago, and it was probably when Trump first got elected, and people would say, well, when that generation dies off, everything will be different. And I always thought, wait a minute, generations have been dying off for centuries and nothing's changing. And in some cases, it's actually getting worse because they can communicate differently. And you have social media and the way things can spread. And you had for four years a president who absolutely endorsed, didn't even find the need 
to be behind a veil in his racism. And so that's all empowered and emboldened a lot of people to say whatever they want to say, whether it's, you know, Ted Cruz complaining that it's offensive that Joe Biden is actually keeping his promise. See, that's the funny thing about this. Biden is doing what he said he would do. And people have a problem with the president actually doing that because the promise he made was to put a black woman on the Supreme Court. As if that isn't egregiously overdue anyway. You know, you're talking 115 justices and only six have not been white men. And look how incredibly upset a lot of people are and and that it's going to be inevitably a black woman. You know, it's not like there are five openings and they're all going to be filled by black women. We know that even if there were, we know that would never happen. But a president is keeping his promise. And that has a lot of people bent out of shape. And they're bent out of shape only because the person who's going to get that job is going to be a black woman. Yeah, And also, I think, because it shows the political power of black people. And he said, you helped put me in the White House. And we know that a majority of whites haven't voted for a Democratic candidate for a long time. And it is that, too. It is, I think, sort of a how dare they have political power and use it as every other group of folks have done it in America. Don't you think? I mean, you know, I do think this this nation suffers from a kind of kind of like a black phobia, (laughs) if you will. You know, I I write a lot about white fear, but I think there is something very legitimate in that, in the idea that there are a lot of white people in this country who worry that, oh, my God, if the playing field is level, which, oh, by the way, it's not, but the playing field is level, then somehow that's going to hurt us. So we have to make the playing field as unlevel as possible to make sure that these people can never, ever catch up. Not because they're not qualified, but we have to make sure they never have that opportunity. So even when you look at, say, the Supreme Court and the makeup of the Supreme Court for the last you know, 230 odd years, the idea that one Black woman would be on that court is way more than they can possibly abide. Yeah, well, I think there have been studies that show, you know, if they see one of us in a neighborhood or one of us in a school, they see 10 of us. They see, right. you know, they, they see 10% of a neighborhood black, that's a black neighborhood. They, they see a school that has better ratings than other schools, but there are too many black people, so they think it's not a good school. That, that is just, I think your term black phobia is really quite accurate. Sad, but, but, but pretty accurate. Um, I was on a show, and they had a... Uh, young male black conservative who was echoing these same talking points about uh, quality and qualifications. And it was so frustrating because I felt just, you know, do you know black history? Do you, do you know, you know, Constance Baker Motley on this, a federal bench in 1966 who had amazing qualifications when Johnson made her the first black federal justice as a black woman and should have been considered, but obviously some people thought she shouldn't have gotten that far. Mm. And so we do have young people that it seems, and young people of color who somehow don't know that history. Is that frustrating to you? It's, it's extremely frustrating, you know, and, and I think part of that is, you know, the blame of schools, what people aren't taught. Um, but I also think of something that um, the, the singer uh, uh, Ruben Blades once said, that this will be the best educated generation to die of ignorance. And I think what he meant by that was 
we have access to more information at our, at our fingertips, literally in our hands and our phones. And somehow we know less and less about people who are different from us, the way the world works. Um, I do think that's part of what's driving a lot of what's happening in schools is that if you can keep people from learning about others, you not only hinder knowledge, you also hinder empathy. You hinder the ways that people see them see themselves in other people and understand that their struggles are related. I think all of those things, all that kind of siloing that's going on um, has always happened in this country. I just think now, you know, it's just a much more organized effort um, to do that. Yeah. And, and I've had conversations with well-meaning and fairly well-to-do white folks. Uh, and they have that incredulous, as you just said, well, before it gets that bad. And and it's the same as Black journalists uh, and brown journalists screaming about, well, Trump, yeah, he could win. And his rhetoric is finding fertile ground. And that's just the way America is. And having many of our white co- colleagues treat him as a joke in 2015. Yeah. I mean, that was I think about that a lot. And I think it was after or it was maybe near the end of Trump's term that some major publication wrote a piece essentially saying, you know what? It wasn't about economic anxiety. It was about racism. And everybody went, no kidding. You know, people were only saying this for years. And people were saying, you know, talking about Donald Trump's racism long before he even ran for president. You know, but there's always that sense that because it's not a problem for them, you know, that they just can ignore it. But black and brown people know, you know, what this country can be and what this country can do. And so we're not sort of sitting back and ignoring um, what's turning into really, really scary efforts in a lot of states. Now, you, you know history, and my son actually is a historian, PhD, mm-hmm. and um, he's always telling me that with progress, mom, he says, always push back. That's the cycle of history. So here we're in 2022, and we have the headlines filled with universities, uh, HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities are getting these bomb threats. And, you know, respectability politics, the prescription, for example, uh, for t- to advance was always get an education, do good things. And then HBCUs are the target. So I want to take you back in history a little bit. How do you think this time relates to the backlash to reconstruction, you know, after the Civil War, when when anytime Black Americans assert their rights and citizenship, you get this extreme backlash? I think it's it's that, but I also think that whenever this country is on the precipice of getting it right, you know, which was the case after the Civil War with Reconstruction. And we see again in the years since Floyd, uh, George Floyd's murder, whenever they're at a moment where they can have a serious change, there's a backlash. Because there are too many people perfectly comfortable with the way things are. You know, that's the thing. It's like, well, and it always that sense that, but if they get this, what am I losing? You're not losing anything. You're going to keep your place in line. You'll be fine where you are. It's just that you won't dominate the line anymore. And that, I always think that's the thing. That's, the, that's always the backlash. There's always this, like, you know it, like you knew when Obama won. I remember uh, having a boss at the time who, who felt like this was like the greatest thing that happened in America because it would end racism. And I remember saying, oh, no, it's, it's going to get worse. It's going to get way worse now. That's not, that wasn't Obama's fault. That was going to be the backlash. 
of people who were not going to be able to stand this Black man as the face of America. And so, you know, I think that's that's always been the pattern in this country. And I, and I, and I go, and Reconstruction is the moment because, you know, the Civil War is over, slavery has ended, and, you know, America is now going to get right, and there's going to be citizenship, and there's going to be voting rights. And the backlash was immediate. There were too many people who were completely comfortable with the way things were and would kill to keep it that way. And I think that's what we're seeing again with, with George Floyd, that there was, there was, you know, there was this whole idea of this great racial reckoning. And a lot of us knew that was never going to happen. America was never going to allow a racial reckoning of any kind. You know, they would get Aunt Jemima, you know, off that bottle, but that was about as far as this was going to go. And, you know, here we are again. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, there's, there's no learning curve in this country. There's no teachable moment because America never learns anything. There's always a sense that somehow, you know, backlash is better than progress. And, mm-hmm. and we know better, but this country never seems to be able to fully embrace progress. And I think it's particularly bad now if you look, you know, sort of the aftermath of the insurrection, that that should have been a moment as well when people said, okay, this has gone way too far. You know, they tried to stop the certification of a legal and fair election. And there are millions of people in this country who are perfectly fine with that and want to know, hey, what comes next? What, what can we do next? And what they've done is, you know, start, you know, have all these bills and laws for voter suppression and uh, election subversion. Like, that's just where we are. The, the backlash is constant now. There's, there's no meeting ground at all in this country when everyone looks at something and says, this is wrong and we have to change it. It's just, it's just it, it's never really existed, but I think we're we're probably further away from it now than we've ever been. And the same way as Martin Luther King Jr. said, yeah, I worry about the moderates, the people you know who value what was it, order over justice. Um, there are many people I know. E- I know even people who voted for Obama, white people who who were still a little bit unnerved at what it said about America that the president they had already always seen as white was a black man and a black family was in the White House. And these are people who voted for them, but felt a certain unease. Uh, Because as you say, they're comfortable with things the way they are. And do you see that as a problem too? Just sort of the people who go along, but they're not hateful, but at the same time, you know, they're a little bit uncomfortable when they see all these people of color that are competing with them and their kids in schools and all of these things. You know, there are, there are a lot of people, a lot of white people in this country who are above the fray and they feel no need to get into it. You know, they don't, they, they don't have to do the work in their minds, so they don't do it. You know, they might not like what Donald Trump did, but they're not going to speak out about it because some of the things Donald Trump did didn't directly affect them. And, and that is a problem. And that's, you know, that's, you're complicit. If you're doing nothing, doing nothing is doing something. Is that how you think that people should think about Black History Month? A time, not just to say, you know, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks were terrific and Frederick Douglass, yeah, and uh, yeah, Harriet Tubman, I saw that movie. <laughs> but, uh, but should really interrogate what they know and how they act and what they're doing uh, 
when it comes to Black Americans in the United States? I mean, is that a prescription? I, I, I think it kind of has to be. I mean, I think there has to be a sense of the connection. And I don't mean this in a Hallmark card kind of way. I mean it in a, you have to understand that if they can violate my rights, they can violate your rights. You know, that it's me today, but it's you tomorrow. And because I am who I am, I have to report both the Rockford Files. And so I'm simply going to say that there was a quote in an episode when I was a kid that I loved so much, I actually wrote it out and stuck it up next to my bed. And it said, there is no such thing as a small injustice. There is no such thing as a minor abridgment of rights. That if even one citizen is so deprived, make no mistake, we all suffer. I think about that all the time. And this idea that, well, you know, I'm not worried about abortion because I'm not planning on getting pregnant or I'm not worried about, you know, anti-Semitism because I'm not Jewish. That's not the way the world should function. And that's always been the way America has functioned, that this thing happens to those people. And, well, I might not like it, but it's none of my business. That's just going to get us deeper and deeper in a hole. That is just not ever going to get us to where this, this nation needs to be. Well, Renee, um, thank you so much for being a guest on Equal Time and sharing your wisdom with our listeners. Uh, I hope you'll come back. And of course, I'll be bugging you about something else <laughs> soon. And I just appreciate uh, your wisdom and your kindness and, uh, and you know, pessimism, but you're in the fight. So thank you for that as well. Where there's life, there's hope, right? So what's keeping me up at night? Listening to the debate and in some quarters the horror over the prospect of a black female justice on the Supreme Court. All I know is if merit and good character were criteria, black women and representatives of Americans of every race and gender and creed whose fate has been decided by the court would have been appointed to the court long ago. As it has played out, they instead were on the outside. Mere observers when the justice and injustice the court sometimes meted out was cruel and turned out to be so very wrong. Appointing this new justice, I believe, is something that is very right and long past due. I write about it in my roll call column this week. Check it out. Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.